So I'll start with something that you may or may not know. Did you know that last year the space agency NASA set up a special study team to investigate UFO sightings? They are calling them unidentified anomalous phenomena. Bit of a mouthful. Basically, it's just a fancy name for UFOs. Seriously, NASA have a whole team of experts that they are paying to work on alien sightings. Their expert panel recently did a four-hour live stream, and during it, they said this: "We have 50 to 100-ish new reports every month that we investigate, but that between 95% and 98% of these can be explained." Now, to me. That still leaves a very big question mark over the remaining two percent to five percent. This all sounds like something from the '90s TV show, The X Files. In The X Files, two FBI agents, Mulder and Scully, had adventures exploring and trying to investigate paranormal activities. A famous line that Scully says to Mulder is, "The truth is out there, but so are lies." Later this month, NASA is going to release their full report and their findings, and you can read that, and you can make up your own mind as to what the truth and the lies are. But actually, whether you believe in UFOs or aliens, I don't think it affects your life all that much. At least I hope it doesn't. <laughs> um, but um, it doesn't change how you spend your time, your money, what you think is right, what you think is wrong, how you treat your family or your work colleagues, or how you relate. To God, but today we are going to read in the Bible about a messenger from out of this world. He is an angel from heaven, and he says that Jesus Christ, who was dead, is alive again. And we have to ask ourselves: Is the resurrection of Jesus true, or is it a lie? Because the answer to this question has the potential to change every single aspect. Of your entire life, and so today we're going to consider three questions: one, did Jesus really die? Two, did Jesus really come back to life again? And three, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus actually make to my life today? So, firstly, did Jesus really die? Well, let me recap the final 24 hours of Jesus's life to get us started. While our day starts and ends at midnight, the Jewish day begins at sunset, and then it ends at the following sunset. So Jesus has the Last Supper on what we call Thursday evening, but to them, that's actually the first hours of Friday. Then Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. While there, he is arrested and he is taken to the Jewish High Priest and the High Council. It's called the Sanhedrin. They put him on trial. And they find him guilty. Then they convince the Roman governor Pontius Pilate that he is deserving of death, and Pilate eventually agrees and allows Jesus to be crucified. And then at、um, Friday at noon, Jesus is then hung on the cross, and then for the following three hours he bleeds and he suffocates to death. And so at 3 p.m. on Good Friday, this is where we pick up the story for this morning. And this is actually where I'm going to pass over to Hannah from our youth, who has very kindly agreed to do our reading for us this morning. So, over to you, Hannah. So、um, I'm reading from 
Mark 15, verse 37 to 47. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the son of James and the younger of Joseph, and Salome. They had, the, they had been followers of Jesus and had carried, cared for him when he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come to, for, with him to Jerusalem were also there. This happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph from Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honoured member of the high council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and he confirmed that Jesus was dead. So Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in cloth and laid it in the tomb that had been carved from the rock. Then he rolled a large stone from the entrance Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. Thank you, Hannah. So did Jesus really die? Well, maybe he was just almost dead, and after a few days lying resting in a tomb, then he was up to, ready to get up and walk around again. Um, maybe he wasn't quite dead, and that's how we can explain an empty tomb later in the story. But actually, Mark records that all these things were, happened. He stopped breathing. A Roman officer, who is a professional executioner, saw how he died. Joseph asks Pilate for the dead body. Pilate asks for confirmation that Jesus is actually dead. The Roman officer double-checks his work, and he confirms Jesus is dead. Joseph takes a dead body down from the cross. Joseph carries it and buries it in a tomb. And Jesus' own mother watches her son die and watches where his body is placed. It has been double and triple checked that Jesus is definitely dead. This is actually a picture of what the outside and the inside of the tombs look like. There is a larger first room. So behind the stone, there's a large first room, and this is where the burial rituals would have taken place. And then there's a much smaller opening towards the floor, and that's where the body is actually more permanently then laid and, and stays. And then a stone is rolled in front, and the dead body is sealed inside. So that's where Jesus would have been buried, in a tomb like this. So Jesus is buried very hurriedly in a tomb like this between his death at 3 p.m. and sunset. Sunset on Friday is the start of the next day. And in this case, that's the Passover Sabbath. That is the biggest celebration in the Jewish calendar. Think of like our Christmas. And if anyone touched a dead body after sunset, then they would be unclean and couldn't celebrate the Passover. You wouldn't want to miss out on this. You do not want to touch that dead body one minute after sunset. So therefore, Friday before sunset, Jesus is dead. And that's day one of Jesus being dead. Friday evening until Saturday evening is the Passover Sabbath and it's day two of Jesus being dead. Because Jesus' body was so quickly buried to beat the Sabbath sunset, part of the burial tradition actually hadn't been completed in time. So we read in the next verse in Mark 16, 1, Saturday evening, when the Sabbath was ended, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so that they could anoint Jesus' body. So the burial spices are purchased on the Saturday night. But it's probably not very wise for Jewish women to go out in the middle of the night to a graveyard out of the city walls to actually complete the burial tradition at that point. So instead we read in the next verses, Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? So on that third day, their expectation was that Jesus is in the tomb where they last saw him. That's what my expectation would have been. And I'm guessing for most of you, that's your expectation as well. Jesus definitely died. It was double checked. It was triple checked. His own mother saw it. Jesus is dead. And we all know dead people stay dead. But now we're going to wrestle with the second question of today's talk. Did Jesus really come back to life again? So let me read verses 4 to 7. But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, so they are now in the first room, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. And presumably he's then showing them the second room where his body would have been laid. That's now empty. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee and you will see him there, just as he told you before he died. Now there have been times in my life where I've really wondered if Jesus really is worth basing my life on, my whole life. Whether there's any point in reading the Bible and living the way that God says. Whether getting up and coming to church on a Sunday, is this the best way to spend my time? All of this only makes sense if what the Bible teaches about Jesus is true. And it does take faith, a leap of faith even, to believe it. So I sympathize with anyone here who is skeptical of the physical resurrection of Jesus. But this is not a blind leap. It is a reasonable one. I've thought about and wrestled with the resurrection of Jesus for a long time, and I've been convinced that the resurrection of Jesus is true and is not a lie. That it is something solid and reliable that I can build my faith and even my entire life upon. So I'd like to walk you through two questions that have really helped me, and maybe they'll help you as well. Firstly, how do you explain the empty tomb? And secondly, if Jesus isn't resurrected, then how do you explain the initial spread of Christianity? One explanation might be that maybe the woman just imagined the empty tomb. Maybe they were so traumatized by how they'd seen Jesus die And crucifixion is really horrific. It's probably the worst way that someone could execute someone. And they were so traumatized by that and by seeing Jesus buried that maybe they just felt he was somehow still with them. That his presence was just guiding them in their hearts. Maybe we aren't meant to understand his resurrection as a physical one, but just some kind of spiritual one. 
You see, they weren't as educated or scientific as we are now, and that surely that made them more gullible and likely to believe in anything and everything. Superstitions and magic. Crazy things like a visit from an angel who talks about a resurrection from the dead. But that's not how Mark's account reads, is it? You don't buy burial spices and worry about the stone being rolled away to get to a dead body if you just have a warm and fuzzy hallucination imaginary experience. And then look at their response in verse 8. The woman fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. This isn't some kind of a hallucination which a group of women all somehow saw at exactly the same moment and then they went away wonderfully uplifted from. This was something so unheard of, so beyond their comprehension that they were trembling, bewildered and frightened. Something like a person who is dead coming back to life again. The more plausible thing to give them this reaction is that they really did find an empty tomb and an angel who tells them about a physically risen Jesus. Another explanation for the empty tomb could be that the disciples stole the body. A few hours actually before Jesus is arrested, here is what um, Peter says to Jesus. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. Doesn't Peter sound like the courageous type, the leadership type, who might come up with a plan and actually execute it to steal the body? He's that kind of big hero, hero, let's do this first and then think about it later. But then after Jesus is arrested, he completely crumbles. Peter denies to a servant girl that he has anything to do with Jesus. And then after Jesus is dead, He doesn't have the courage to ask Pilate for the body. Did you notice that? As the leader of the disciples, as everyone knew he was the one in charge of them, the one who was closest to Jesus, it was his social responsibility to have the courage to go to Pilate and say, I am associated with Jesus, please give me the body. But he's not there. He doesn't have the courage. He's away somewhere else that isn't mentioned. But instead, some guy that's not been mentioned before, Joseph of Arimathea, he's the one who asks for the body. He is the one risking his life and his career for the body so that Jesus can be buried properly, not Peter. The other Gospels also tell us that, the, that Pilate put soldiers outside of the tomb to guard it just in case someone did try and steal the body. Is it realistic that Peter goes to the other disciples and says, Lads, I've got a great idea. Let's go and take on the Roman soldiers. Forget about what happened to Jesus. We'll be okay. And we'll steal the body. And then we'll tell everyone that Jesus is raised from the dead. Hands up. Who's with me? Anybody? Anybody with me? Even if Peter had this idea, and somehow their plan was successful in overthrowing some Roman soldiers by a bunch of fishermen, what did they stand to gain? They didn't become rich from the resurrection. There were no TV evangelists in that day. They didn't get donations in Roman silver that allowed them to then fly around the Roman Empire in jets and fancy sports cars. 
The lived experience was not one of opulence and not one of luxury at all. Because they said they saw Jesus risen from the dead and they refused to back down from that claim, no matter what happened to them, they were hunted down, tortured, thrown into prisons and killed in very barbaric ways. The death of the 12 disciples reads a little bit like the um, Henry VIII wives riddle. Do you know that one? How did Henry VIII's wives end up? Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Well, here's the disciples' equivalent. Crucified, crucified, beheaded. Old age, crucified, skinned alive. Beheaded, pierced with a spear, clubbed to death. Sawn in half, beheaded. Have you ever in your lives come across someone who is willing to suffer that kind of torture and not change their mind on anything? Never mind something that was completely fabricated and that they know they are lying about if they stole the body. If you don't believe the explanation of the angel, then you need to come up with an alternative, realistic explanation for the fact that the tomb is empty. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, then what is your explanation as to why this group of disciples lived and died the way they did? A life of complete self-sacrifice to spread the message that they saw Jesus physically risen from the dead. How did Christianity spread into every city and town across the Roman Empire through these disciples, if the message of the angel is not true. They had no financial resources, no army, no political power. All they had was the explanation from an angel. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This to me really is the best explanation of the empty tomb and the early spread of Christianity. However, I appreciate that not everyone might be still with me at this point, and you might have some alternative ideas or reasons that, that um, I haven't mentioned, and there are some others that people take, but I've gone for the most popular ones. Um, but I'm more than happy to discuss this after and talk more about this. I'm sure many others are. If you have an alternative or if you want to talk more about the resurrection of Jesus, then love to do that. But let me just take the final 10 minutes that I've got here on the third section. What relevance does Jesus' resurrection have in my life today? And there are lots of reasons I could give and lots of impacts this has. But let me just give three ways briefly. Firstly, it means that Christianity is true. If you are wrestling with the existence of God or the core beliefs of Christianity, including the resurrection, then maybe you'll find this book by a pastor called Tim Keller helpful. It is called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And it's written to give an intellectually sound and reasonable reason why God exists and why Christianity has merits for reasonable, good-thinking people. And in it, Tim Keller says this. He says, 
if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I really hope that you find City Church today and every day a very welcoming place. I hope that you find people who will love you and care for you, people who will pray with you and share your burdens with you. I hope you enjoy the praise and the worship. I hope the youth enjoy the fun and the games and even the food we share and even the Lego that we play. I hope that you believe that Jesus' teaching can have a positive impact on your life. But I really hope that none of those are the reasons why that you have become or may consider becoming a Christian. Christianity's foundation is not kind people or making friends or having a community or even trying to do all of the things that Jesus said. Christianity is based on the fact that Jesus died and Jesus rose again. And this is so important because there are days, many of which I've had, where we won't feel loved by others. We don't feel like this church or any church or praying or any prayers or anything can make a positive impact on your life. Where you feel lonely and Jesus' teachings are not something you can live out or even want to live out. But my feelings, my life circumstances have no impact on the truth of whether Jesus is God's son who rose from the dead. My personal relationship with God is not secure in how I feel, but in the fact the resurrection is true. He conquered death and is alive, and no circumstances or situation in my life can ever change that fact. All of his teachings, all of his miracles, his healings, the truth of everything Jesus did, rests on his identity as the Son of God who died and who rose again. If the resurrection is true, then all of Christianity is true. Amen? Amen. And secondly, your failures do not prevent Jesus moving towards you this morning. Peter fails Jesus totally and utterly. Surely Jesus can never trust ever again what Peter says. Surely Peter isn't even liked, never mind loved by Jesus anymore after what he did. He said he didn't even know Jesus. Why would God and Jesus want anything to do with Peter ever again? Haven't we all thought that and felt that about ourselves at some point? That we've made such a mess, done so many things we regret, said things or done things we've not meant to, or failed to do things we really, really should have done, or hurt others on so many occasions? We failed totally and utterly in who we should be. Why would God and Jesus want anything to do with me? Yet Jesus does want a relationship with Peter. And he does want a relationship with you. Did you notice that Peter was specifically mentioned by the angel in verse 7? Now go and tell his disciples, all of which abandoned Jesus, but including Peter, 
that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus moves towards Peter to restore their relationship based not on Peter's failures, but on Jesus' own grace and forgiveness. I'm going to recommend another wonderful book, and I meant to mention that if anyone wants to borrow this, they're more than welcome to, to borrow my copy of this. But the second book, I'm afraid you can't borrow, um, not because it's precious, but because it's on Kindle. Sorry about that. It is called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book that's really helped me. And the author is Dane Ortland, and he writes this. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. So if you feel the weight of the failures in your life heavy on your shoulders this morning, then don't think for one second that this then causes Jesus to turn his back on you and walk away from you. Jesus welcomes you this morning and he moves towards you, not because he is blind to your failures, he isn't. He knows everything you've ever said, done or thought. He knows every time you've let yourself and everyone else down. But if you trust him today, then he has paid for you to be washed white as snow and wiped all of that clean through his death on the cross. And now he is risen and alive. He reaches towards you to have a living relationship with you. This is only possible if the resurrection is true. Jesus is no use to you and your faith in him is of no use to you if he's still dead. And you know the Bible actually says this. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter and in it he says this. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, including mine this morning. And your faith is useless. There is no point to us being here today or any other day or any other church meeting. And there is no freedom from your failures if Jesus is still dead. But because he is alive, Jesus is moving towards you this morning. Failures and all. Just like he said, and include Peter. He says, and include Mark, and include James, and include Simon, and include Hannah, and include you, and you, and you, and you. Peter accepted the invitation. He went to Galilee, and he had his relationship with the living God restored through a risen Jesus. Will you? Will you accept the invitation to have your relationship with God restored through a risen and living Jesus? That invitation says, and you. Take it. And thirdly, just as I finish in the last minute, the disciples went into all the world at great cost to themselves to tell everyone about a risen Jesus. And we can do the same. Trembling, fearful, not knowing what to say, it is okay that we are so often like the woman fleeing from the tomb. Remember verse 8? The woman fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. But this is clearly just their initial reaction. They did find the courage to go and share what they had seen. 
Otherwise, Mark wouldn't have had a book to write. The church wouldn't exist. And we wouldn't be here today. Across the Roman Empire, lives were changed through a relationship with a living Jesus because frightened and confused women went and told scared and hiding Peter and the disciples what an angel explained to them about an empty tomb. And they went and they investigated it and they met with the risen Lord and their lives were changed forever. And we can do the same. You don't need to understand everything. These women clearly did not understand everything they experienced that morning. But they shared what they did know. That it is true that Jesus really died. And it is true that Jesus really did rise to life. Once again. And that the resurrection of Jesus really does change everything. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Can I pray for us? Father God, where would we be if you hadn't sent your son? If he hadn't been willing to die and rise again for us? To pay the penalty for all of our wrongdoings and failures? Your love for us is incredible and overwhelming and even hard to believe at times. But it is true because the resurrection is true. Through your Holy Spirit, help us to know the certainty of this deep in our hearts this morning. Thank you that Jesus can move towards us this morning because he is alive and has paid for every failure in my life and those around us. And that we can trust him with that. Give us the courage to share this good news with those around us this week this month, this year. Amen. Amen. Amen.